Welcome to Acute Conversations, the official podcast of APTA Acute Care, where we share engaging conversations about acute care physical therapy so you can connect to your profession. I'm Ashley. And I'm Leo. Today we chat with Elisa Curry. She is the coordinator of rehab clinical programs at Washington Hospital and a board certified clinical specialist in geriatric physical therapy. Today we discuss older adults and falls, total joint replacements in acute care, and what biking 545 miles does to the human body. Let's welcome our guest. Lisa, welcome to our show today. Thank you for having me, both of you. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited that you're here. I love to, I love talking to you too. So now, now there's evidence of it. <laughs> so I, I want to jump off. Like I'm so fascinated about you being a geriatric specialist working in the acute care environment. So I really just want to hear about your experience being a geriatric specialist in the acute care. And also, you know, how, how are you using that specialty for this patient population specifically? Well, I, I was probably like a lot of people when I got into thinking about becoming a physical therapist and it morphed quickly into, I love older patients. I love everything about them in terms of the experience that they have, the advice that they have, the effort that they put forward. I, my only, my only time that I really give in to geriatric patients is when they're over 90. And then I tell them, okay, you, you tell me what we're working on today. And I have never had a patient over 90 tell me that they didn't want to do anything. It's always that they want to do something. And so I, I've always had a love for geriatric patients and older patients. So, so with joint replacement, yeah, I've been doing joint replacement for the majority of my career. And what I've found is that the joint replacement population is not a geriatric population anymore. It's mm. morphed and the average age has come down to below 65 for our patient population. So we're now seeing patients in their early 60s. And so this has definitely been a, a practice that has evolved. Why is that? Do you think it's because the the prosthetics, the replacements are lasting longer than they used to? Or do you think it's just because we are wearing our joints out earlier? Well, it's it's actually the fact that the the whole the whole realm of total joint replacement from the cements that they use, the implants that they use, the surgical technique and most importantly, pain management strategies have improved so much mm. that there's no reason for anyone to wait any longer to have joint replacement surgery. People, when there are certain hospital systems that shall remain nameless, who used to tell people that they were too young at 70 to have a joint replacement and too old oh. at 75 to have a joint replacement. And that so is people a were waiting. Goldilocks window. Yeah, right. That's exactly. right. You're very narrow. And, yeah. and, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a dollar if you can guess what the wait time was at that time for people to get in to have joint replacement surgery. Ooh, this is fun. That was a test. Do, are, did you really want us to guess? I will really give you a dollar. I'd say Five three. years. That is correct. You have a dollar Four. coming to you. Which then one? You it's five years. So they, at the time, they used to tell people you were too young at 70, you were too old at 75, and then there'd be a five-year waiting list at the time. And then you're like, because, proud. because you were, and it, it was, it was horrific. And oh this is gosh. early, this is early in my career and like the early, I would say, let's see, I started at my hospital in 96. So this was pre-96 that I was hearing this. And so people were debilitated. They were waiting too long. They would be in nursing homes for multiple days and 
So fast forward there, you know, when I started doing this, people had, they were getting joint replacement surgery and staying in the hospital for five days on average. And wow. now people are in the hospital for, or in a outpatient ambulatory surgery center in ASC. They're there for five hours. Yeah. So you said Start I get a hundred dollars because I got it right, right? A hundred. No, I said, no, I said one. Okay. One. Nice <laughs> try. Great try. <laughs> no, Alisa, as long as I've known you and just hearing more about these stories, you're like an OG in terms of joint replacements and working in the field. Like, I want to take it further back. Like, how did you even get into PT? And then I want to know, because at least in my experience, a lot of people come into PT and maybe they don't really think that they're going to be working with the geriatric population. But you had said that it was something that you had always wanted to do or, or enjoyed doing. So can I take it back into what got you into PT? And then when was that light bulb moment, that aha moment where, wow, geriatric population, that, those are the types of patients I don't want to work with? Well, I, I, when I was in college, I went to UC San Diego, go Tritons. And when I was in college, I had a roommate when I was a senior who said out of the blue, it was very, it was a very fluke thing, but said out of the blue, I think you'd be a great physical therapist. And I got to ask her years later, because we're still friends, what made you say that? And she said, I don't know. But based on that recommendation, I started looking at it as a career because I was a psychology major, which I think is a fantastic foundation for any healthcare career. Absolutely. Um, and, and I tell people now, kinesiology majors are a dime a dozen, love them. But when you have a psych background in healthcare, you learn how to, to really uh, get into the patient's intentional you know, actions and why they're motivated to do certain things or not. So you really get a feel for patients. But yeah, that's huge, actually. Like, I'm just thinking like motivational interviewing, behavior change, like so many Absolutely. things. I, I use I use the skills that I've learned every single day. And, and I've never, you know, we're always going to learn the anatomy and the physiology and the, and the pathophysiology and the differential diagnosis. But having the ability to look people in the eye, talk to them and know how to listen is, you know, it, it's a lost art. And so I was a psych major. I was a physical education minor. I thought I wanted to do sports. And lo and behold, I, I started working at an aide and, and at UCSD Medical Center and went from being an aide, loved it, decided I couldn't live in San Diego and think about going back to grad school. So I moved back to the Bay Area and worked in a couple more aid positions. And I ended up uh, going to PT school at Langston University in Oklahoma, of all places. Wow. Oh my gosh. So Mary, go, go Tigers. Go Tigers. Well, I know you've mentioned, Essa, you do a lot of work in the community and specifically like related to falls and falls prevention. So I would just love to hear kind of like, where are we right now with falls and falls prevention and the evidence and kind of how, how do you take some of that out of the community and then maybe bring it back to acute care? Just feel free to share whatever you want about that. So, so the, the, Transitions that we've had over the last 20 years in joint replacement has really highlighted that going through the process of having a total, jo a lower extremity total joint is much easier than it used to be. And so now you're seeing a large majority of patients have outpatient ambulatory surgery center total joint. So they're not in facilities very long. They're in, they're out same day. They're ambulatory and walking. but as we as therapists understand that 
recovery, physical function recovery is not just about putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. It's about balance. It's about coordination. It's about other, it's about the body thing. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing the more challenged patients, those with more um, comorbidities, we're seeing them in the hospital setting, having their joint replacement surgery. And you're seeing patients who are physically capable of going through the recovery, but history of Parkinson's, history of, of stroke, history, of, you know, any neurologic disorder, prior history or a history of mentation issues, cognitive decline that's not diagnosed. And so all of these factors contribute to being able to get this patient population home from this type of a surgery. So we, you know, we still have some physicians who want to just discharge them straight away and not address those issues. And what it does in the continuum of care is it can create patients who are higher risk for falls, higher risk for physical decline because they're not leaving their homes. They're, they're patients who are affecting our readmission rate. And, you know, as an example, I happen to be working on a systematic review right now, looking at physical function as a determinant for hospital readmission. Mm-hmm. So it all, con- it all comes back around to, we need to create better patients. We need to, to teach people how to intervene earlier. And all of the factors that aren't addressed are just going to get pushed down the line in the continuum of care. And that's going to, you know, that perpetuates patients who have, you know, many medical problems. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so Dave, funny. Just, I just have a follow-up question. So I recently, I had an aunt recently that went through a joint replacement surgery and has not walked in. Now, given mm-hmm. she had a pretty high BMI and had a hard time finding a surgeon to do her surgery, but she was barely ambulatory before the surgery. I mean, she was walking, but with a cane and very intelligent gait. So I'm just curious from your perspective, like, are we still waiting till people can barely walk and are in like such dire pain to do these joint replacements? Or is it better to be people who are still more independently functioning and do them earlier? Like what, what, what's given us the best outcomes right now in joint replacement? So, so having, there's, there's a variety of joint surgeons out there, orthopedic surgeons that do joint replacement. The recommendations are that you see less complications with, with surgeons who do high volume mm-hmm. joint replacement with comprehensive programs that surround the surgeon. So education programs, and you want to look at the, the number of patients that are discharged to skilled nursing facilities. I think geographic location makes a huge difference. So if you look at some of the high volume centers, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, you look at University of Colorado, you look at the University of Delaware, where they're doing actual research in this field, you know, University of Utah, what you see is you see programs built around the education piece. And really there has to be, there has to be a patient-centered approach to the care, not just the surgeon saying, we're going to do joint replacement. It has, the patient has to be involved from the beginning of the process and they have to be accountable. So even someone who isn't very ambulatory, there needs to be a plan that's discussed in, you know, in the process of planning an elective surgery, because an elective surgery means you're choosing to have surgery. You choose to, you know, read the materials and that's what improves outcomes in the long run. With someone like your aunt, you know, she didn't, she probably had difficulty but she probably could benefit from not just strengthening because strengthening such a, it's, it's such a, you know, broad term, mm-hmm. but more so, but more so is she 
is she using the right muscle groups to start to work on sit to stand? Sit to stand alone. And before we even try to add in any sort of resistance or any sort of power, we need to make sure that people have the range of motion. If they don't have the range of motion in a joint, you can't strengthen the joint. So we're, there's steps in the process that, that go along with getting her back to walking, just making sure that she has the mobility and the flexibility to, to start moving and then reinforcing that part of the process before we start worrying about how many repetitions of an exercise she's doing. That's, that's really where we have to put our focus. And especially as it relates to transferring simple, simple things that she'll need to do when she goes home. It comes back to that ICF model, right? Those impairments we need. Get those kind of basic impairments first before we can start thinking about function yeah. is patient and all of those things. Yeah, that's great. Correct. Correct. Oh, I was going to say, Alisa, just hearing you kind of speak about these things, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's like the bread and butter of what we do as therapists, right? It's like you have these, these patients and they have these impairments and it doesn't have to be super fancy. You go back to basics, but there is a skill that's involved. So I want to ask this, this question of you. As you've seen therapists evolve and, and, and just joint replacement programs and rehabilitation evolve over the past uh, number of years as a, as a therapist, what are the underutilized skills that we as therapists are not doing enough of that kind of helps, that, that, that creates kind of this watering down effect of, of, of what we do as therapists, right? A lot of therapists are asking for, we want more respect. We want a little bit more of a seat at the table in terms of interdisciplinary communication. Yet, they might treat joint replacement program as in, I'm just going to walk the patients. I'm just going to get them up, which I hate to hear it. I cringe when I hear that. So what are, mm-hmm. what are the, the skilled components that really demonstrate how valuable we are to the team? And what are the underutilized aspects uh, of what we do on the floors? And Leo, I just have to say, that's a great question. Because Elisa, I saw you published an article that we're not just techs. So yeah. it's not just cookie yeah. cutter protocols like people yes, cook it is and joint replacements. I can't wait to hear your response. Yeah, we'll pass you the mic now. We'll pass you the mic. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. So so let me try not to get up on the soapbox here. But oh, please a, do it. Do oh, it. Get on the gap. Yeah, I was going to say, this is what you have a platform. Get yes. on the soapbox. I am climbing up. So, so there's, there are a lot of surgeons who write a lot of and publish a lot of articles about what they think joint placement is, which is about walking. It's about, well, they walk fine. They're doing fine. That's, you know, that's what we're looking for. They're not having pain anymore and they're walking fine. Those are the two factors that they look for. There's a lot of, there's a lot of packaged programs that are starting to come out that companies are developing where the protocols can be put in and given to the patient and they give them an, they give them an Apple watch and they say, oh, this is going to tell you when to do your exercises. And this is going to tell you when to, you know, how much pain are you having? And that's all you need. You don't need to go to therapy. And well, okay, stop. Seriously. <laughs> I um, didn't, hey, don't we are, because we are not going to be replaced by Apple watches. I'm right. sorry. Those are fight words right there. All I'm right, telling you that that's part of, that's part of what's coming down the pipe. And so to, you know, the, um, just, I, we talked about this. So the August issue of APTA magazine, you know, I was lucky enough to be interviewed with four other clinicians about joint replacement. And this is some of what we talked about is we really have to be diligent about identifying deficits. And I think, you know, especially when we get these patients in the outpatient setting and we're trying to figure out, you know, their, their 12 to 20 visits that they get, you know, can't all be about putting someone on a bike, can't all be about putting someone on 
on a, a treadmill or an elliptical or, you know, giving them TheraBand. We are clinicians. We have the ability to identify deficits and we are losing that in some cases because we're trying to opt for the volume. So I would say it's the quality of what we provide that's really critical. The quality of our assessment skill, looking at how the foot hits the floor, looking mm -hmm. at the body chain, looking at what is slowing this down. And if you want to talk about going back to basics, it's the smart goals. Mm -hmm. It's the specific, it's the goal specific to that patient. It's the measurable goal. It is the achievable goal because sometimes we don't set goals that are necessarily achievable for a patient just because of sometimes our own implicit biases. Mm -hmm. You know, a bariatric patient can still walk. And if this is not a criticism of us as a profession, this is just fact that we want to do the best that we can for our patients and we are always advocating for our patients. But I think what we fight sometimes is we fight the fact that the physicians are saying, we're only going to do this or we, the patient doesn't need this. We need to highlight that deficit. That deficit is causing X problem and X problem is going to cause this outcome. So we need to start treating this. That's how we make ourselves more of pertinent. Well, and that education piece that you mentioned, like that is so important as well. Like I can even imagine, at least I'm imagining you with your patients, like taking out some knee model and being like, this is what it looks like now. And here's what you need to do. And here's what will happen if you don't. Like, you know, I feel like we can get really granular with some of the education because these people are electing to have these surgeries. They want to have these surgeries because they want to have a better quality of life and less pain. So I feel like you're, you're you know, perhaps say this, you're getting like some motivated patients, hopefully already, because they're choosing to do this. And right. you all that do the joint replacement therapy used to make me so mad. You know why? Because all your patients would write all these glowing reviews <laughs> and they would be like, oh, I had the best therapist ever. Oh, they were so amazing. And then I had these people getting heart surgeries that really don't want to be there. And they're just like, just give me home. I'm not okay. writing a glowing review. Just right. give me home. Well, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. That is, that is the challenge. So I'm going to take it back to your aunt, for example. So yeah. specific to your aunt, what is her goal? I mean, those, it, you know, like I said, it's, I think, I think that acronym was smart. You know, sometimes it is about taking it back to the basics. And, yeah. you know, we, we are now all the therapists that we used to go to for advice. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, because we're now, you know, I've been practicing in this profession for, you know, almost 30 years now. And one of the things that I find is that I find more and more that I'm really trying to just back up. And I'm trying to slow myself down. And so when I go into a patient, I'm, I'm asking them, okay, what, do, what are we shooting for here? What do you want to be able to do? And based on whatever that activity is, I, we break that, that physical activity down. And we say, okay, to, you know, if, you, if all you care about is going to the movies once a week, let's talk about what you have to do to get there. And then we look at the function, the physical function that it takes for somebody to get in the car, get or get dressed and get in the car and go to the movie. And maybe go to lunch and maybe go see their grandchildren or their children or maybe get away from their grandchildren or children. Right. You know, and, and that's really that's really what what our what our function, what our functional goals have to be based in. Not not, you know, a bunch of repetitive exercises, because at the end of the day, yes, they need to strengthen and they definitely need to get stronger. But we also need to make it tangible for them to achieve it. So relevant goals, time-based goals, it all, you know, it all 
goes back to that basic. You just hit the nail on the head for the underutilized skill. Skill. I can't tell you how many times, like I've been with students, residents, like no one asks the patient sometimes what their goals are in acute care. The goal, like the therapist goes in with the preconceived notion of what the goal is going to be, which is to get up, get moving, get home. But you're so right. Like not every patient has the goal of wanting to be able to like walk laps around the hospital floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that's so so important. I think we need to be asking all of our patients, like, what do you want to get out of this? And, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of people, you know, a lot of people assume that joint replacement is easy and it's, it, it seems very straightforward because you have an elective population motivated. They're only here for, you know, 24 hours. And so it's, you know, easy technically, but it's no different than treating a multi, multi comorbidity patient who is in the hospital. No one in the acute care is staying. Mm-hmm. You know, we do care where you go, but you got to get out of here. So we got to get them. We have to get them somewhere. And so because of that, the, 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 the focus is still the same. It's just that with one population, it's still a little, you know, it, it's a little more straightforward and patients are able to verbalize. But at the end of the day, we're all doing the same thing. And, and that really is the key to keeping any, getting any patient to their highest functional level. And now a quick announcement from APTA Acute Care. Do you know someone that is making a difference within acute care physical therapy? Did you know that APTA Acute Care has five annual awards to honor contributions to elevate acute care? The deadline for 2024 nominations is fast approaching, October 10th. Please check out our awards page to see what is involved in making a nomination. The Academy has five awards, the Mary Sinnott Award for Clinical Excellence in Acute Care, James Dunleavy Distinguished Service Award, Judy Euler Fellowship Award, the Lecture Award, and the Katherine Harris Educator Award. These awards are the highest honor APTA Acute Care can bestow in recognition of excellence and are awarded at CSM annually during the membership meeting. APTA Acute Care members and, in some instances, non-members are encouraged to to nominate deserving individuals for these awards. To view the nomination forms and descriptions of award criteria and supporting documentation, visit the links below. Again, nominations are accepted until October 10th, 2023. And now, back to the show. Elisa, I have a question for you. Yeah, you maybe think about it. Is that within these joint replacement programs or just being within the acute care setting, there's a lot of interprofessional interdisciplinary interactions. And so some of our audience members out there are either A, new grads or students, or might be relatively new just being in a hospital setting. And one of the skills that you had mentioned, you know, I just kind of listening to just our ability to listen, but also to interact. And I do remember being a new grad, mm-hmm. thinking the interactions with the orthopedic doctors and, and managing their demands and expectations. Oh, such a good point. Walk 150 feet today, it's the therapist's fault. Who's it? So it's just Managing those, and, and after years of experience, I was able to establish really good rapport with the surgeons I worked. But mm-hmm. what advice would you give to some of these newer grads that are really, that might be timid or shy or not as assertive to be able to have these interdisciplinary conversations with, with doctors and nurses and you know, physician's assistants and all the other parts of that interdisciplinary team? Yeah, the, the, best, the best thing that is happening like at my facility right now is that there's this refocusing of the multidisciplinary rounds. 
Mm-hmm. And whether you get invited to rounds or whether you just maybe eavesdrop during rounds or maybe you do your documentation where rounds are occurring, it's important that you be in on conversations and hear what's being discussed because that really sets the tone for what we bring to the table. You know, there's a famous quote, if you're not invited to the table, bring your own chair. And yeah, I like that. so <laughs> it's, it's really about showing up and, and advocating. You know, we're, our role is to advocate for patients. Our role is to, is to get that physical function perspective. So what we need to do is, re, you know, when they're trying to discharge someone from the hospital, you know, we in the acute care setting, we know that for every day that a patient is in bed, it takes two days to recover. And if we are advocating, and I'm, I'm getting out of joint replacement, but it's really important. If we are advocating for those patients to be seen, if we are keeping track of those patients that are, they're trying to get discharged, but they're not looking at the, the whole picture, that person lives up a, a three-story, you know, three-story walk up with, you know, with limited weight bearing and no upper extremity, you know, strength, mm-hmm. then discharging home is not an option. Or, you know, perfect example, I, I literally just got out of a patient's room and this patient, previous joint replacement patient, had foot drop from his um, surgery, different hospital, not our facility. And his foot drop was never assessed by mm-hmm. physical therapy. He never got an AFO. And the patient currently has a callus on his fifth metatarsal head. The patient's in here for a fall. He's got a knot on his head. He's all bruised and banged up. And a simple Swedish off-the-shelf AFO was all this guy needed to keep him safe. And so... It, it can be like so that. simple sometimes. It, it is. And yeah. it's, it's, it's really paying attention to the little things. And, and again, talking to this gentleman, he's 84. He's still driving. He's fully alert and oriented. We put, a, we put one on him and he's walking around the unit, no problem. And so something that simple could have kept that man out of the hospital prior yeah. when, he had, when he just had his joint replacement in February. It blows my mind sometimes in acute care. I would see patients with foot drop that have ne- never been addressed. And I'm always like, how is this possible? And I, I used to do the same thing. Luckily, we had like an, um, an orthotics prosthetics department right on site. And I'd be like, hey, can mm-hmm. you bring this guy in AFO? And you're so right. Like it made all the difference. Yeah. yeah. And so, so to Leo, to answer your question, what, what a new grad can do, what an experienced therapist can do, Sometimes the best thing that you can do is don't ignore the little things yeah. because the little things make a huge difference. So mm-hmm. if somebody looks like they're not walking well, step back and assess and see what, what are they not doing well? You know, are they not sitting well? Do they have the right support? Are they, you know, what's going on here that they're not doing that? There, there's so many, there's so many pieces to what we do and there's never enough time. But mm-hmm. if we always treat the patient like it's the last time we're going to see them, Mm-hmm. then we know mm-hmm. we've done as much as possible. So that for me is always a big plus. Mic drop. I like that quote. <laughs> they <laughs> always treat the patient like it's the last time you're going to see them. I love that quote. I'm going to use that in class. We're going to highlight Thank that you. in our show notes. I'm stealing that. <laughs> but in a cute care, it's so true. You might come back the next day and that was the last time. Yeah, you that was. That, that was. It is. It is. It is. You know, oh, this patient's going to be here for five days. They're gone. Nope. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Alisa, mm. one one more question that I wanted to ask you that's totally not related to the acute care setting. I read uh, that you've done you were the medical supervisor for this five hundred mile bike ride. 
what is yes. going on with this? That for me, I've, I've heard of a century ride. Yeah, 500, yeah. 500 plus. What's the distance That's from? That's long. That's a long it's bike ride. Yeah. Imagine how much your miles. butt would be hurting by the end of that. <laughs> That's that's exactly why I was the specialty deputy and not riding the bike. <laughs> ah, so tell us about what was yeah. that? It was from so to Los, An- to Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. So it's the AIDS life cycle. So it's a bike ride. It's uh, 575 miles. Wow. Starts in San Francisco. Usually the first the first Saturday in June, and it's a seven day event. So cyclists raise at least three thousand dollars, either three thousand or thirty five hundred dollars. A cyclist, they raise the money, and so the reward is being able to cycle. And then the roadie team are a group of absolutely selfless volunteers, different teams that support them. And so I started out the event as part of the sports medicine team and got involved with a great group of physical therapists who I worked with, and then chiropractors actually. So PTs and chiropractors. And then I went from being a part of that team to managing that team. So I was the the captain and then I um, moved into the specialty deputy role. So that was actually supervising, kind of overseeing physicians, nurses, EMTs, uh, PAs, and then the massage team, the sports med team, which was PTs and athletic trainers, and then the chiropractic team, which came from a school out of Southern California. And so I kind of oversaw those teams and helped work triage and just made sure that they had what they needed to do their jobs. So I did that event for almost 20 years. Um, Oh my gosh. And that, let me tell you something, that is one of the best training tools that I have ever had to be a physical therapist. Because in that, in that setting, you have to teach people how to get back on a bike with the deficits that they're having and how to treat themselves out in the middle of a road somewhere where, let's say, they cramp up. You got to teach them how to use their bike to do a proper soleus stretch. You have to assess for assess for ulnar palsies that can occur from gripping the bike. Oh, the that's right. You you treat a lot of neck pain from the wind. You know, fighting the headwinds. So it has given me some of the best assessment tools. And you know, when I really use the skills that I learned not just in treating, but organizationally and everything was during COVID. That was the best training that I ever had because it taught me to be reactionary. It taught me to really mobilize your team. It, it, It really, a lot of the skills that I learned doing that event, I've carried over. So volunteering, absolutely one of the best ways. There's a lot of volunteer opportunities for PTs. Wow. That's the chaos doesn't phase you. <laughs> you know, I, I I can say that under pressure, I try to stay pretty cool because I I, I channel that. That's awesome. That's amazing. That is really awesome. Well, Leah, Leah, you know what I think it's time for. I think it is time. For sure. Time for the rapid responses. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it. So, let me get my questions ready. I'm getting my timer ready. Let's get ready. It is rapid responses, Elisa. You said that. You're going to stick to the true rap- rapidity of the responses. The first okay. thing that comes to your mind, just bring it out. Okay. All right. Yeah. Ready? And go. All right. Elisa, what's your f- most favorite way to exercise? Golf. I love to play golf and play it on Sunday. Awesome. Favorite book? Ooh, my stroke of insight, Jill Bolte. Yep. yep. I know that one. Favorite drink on a hot summer day? Alcoholic or not? Either one. Let's go with alcohol. Let's make it fun. 
deep eddy ruby red grapefruit or deep eddy lime vodka with lemonade. Very that was cool. very specific. <laughs> it's very specific. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm a night owl. Definitely. Favorite movie? Ooh. Defending Your Life with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks and Idio- Idiocracy with Maya Rudolph and Luke Wilson. And then I'd like to know your favorite sweet treat, but it's time. Then I'm going to have to ask the last question. So what's your favorite sweet treat? I'm not a, I'm not a huge sweet person. I'm more of a savory person. Mm. So I am, I am all about a delicious steak. (laughs) Yes. Uh, A steak and a steak and glass of wine. Always, Mm. always a plus. I like it. So our last question, you know, you work in acute care when complete the sentence. Someone else asked this question. Uh, You know, you work in acute care when. Uh, you own eight pairs of polkas and you haven't been to the bathroom until 2.30. <laughs> that is so true, though. <laughs> you know what I just thought about? I used to never drink water either. I uh-huh. would go hours without drinking a sip and then I'd sit down finally and I'd be like, I am perched. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So true. Don't have time to cure. You're trying to be as productive as possible. Try to get as, as many patients as possible. They're lined up in the queue. Yep. So true. Absolutely. Get them all before lunch and then <laughs> get them all right after. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's it. Alisa, where can, people, where can people find you in terms of social media? Do you have social media that they can you know, contact they, you at? Or, they sorry. can. I'm, I'm on, I, I am on a few different social media sites. So I'm on Twitter as at Body Physics. I'm on Instagram as Body Physics. I'm on uh, Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. I'm always a resource. So if people have questions, I, I think that's one of the things that we need to do as, as professionals is we need to reach out to each other. So I've reached out to people um, in different specialties. We're, we're transitioning to level two trauma next year. And so I'm looking for all the resources and level two trauma I can find for equipment needs and things like that. And I am always a, a resource for people for volunteering or jodel joint replacement, any one of those things that I can help with. I always make myself available. I can vouch for that, Elisa, because I do remember you had mentioned something in a meeting about measuring that first MTP joint and that the, the falls risk related to it. They have inflexible kind of MTP joints. And I'm like, that's always stuck in my head. And I remember picking your brain about that. So 100% Absolutely. correct. Thank you so much for that. You, you changed my practice. Oh, you know what? I, I changed my own practice because that's something that I still look at every day is how mm-hmm. you know, it, people, people's ankle flexibility and it does make a huge deal. Okay, offline. I'm going to have to learn about this offline. But... <laughs> Alisa, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my gosh. I, I look forward to talking to you guys. And, and you know, I, I can't wait till Boston because, you know, we, we do some of our best work when we're all just hanging around together. At the booth, so. Oh, my God. I, I love so hanging out with people. Yes, I'll hang out with you anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds great. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. This is fantastic. Of course. Bye. All right. Bye, everybody. We would like to thank Elisa for joining us today. Acute Conversations is the official podcast of APT Acute Care. It is hosted by Leo Regulus and Ashley Poole. Executive produced by Katie Brito and Edward Mathis. Music by Alexi Action from Pixabay. Sound effects also from Pixabay. For more information about APT Acute Care, please visit our website, aptacutecare.org. And be sure to check out our show notes for links and resources from the Academy. If you found value from our podcast, 
please be sure to subscribe, follow, and share with your friends and colleagues. Join us next week for a bonus conversation with Lindsay Ardiff and Abby McGowan about the upcoming Academy Town Hall being held on September 19th. Thank you for listening, and may your shoes and scrubs stay clean today. Mic drop, I like that quote. They <laughs> always treat the patient like it's the last time you're going to see them. I love that quote. I'm going to use that in class. <laughs>